Hello, and welcome to the new Art of the Cut podcast brought to you in partnership with Frame.io. My name is Steve Holfish. I'm a feature film and documentary editor. For more than seven years, over 300 interviews, I've been speaking to my colleagues in film, TV, and docs about the art and craft of editing. Today, we're speaking with Joseph Jett Saley, editor of the much-anticipated continuation of the Matrix saga, Matrix Resurrections, directed by Lana Wachowski. Saley has edited films like Ninja Assassin and Breaking In. He was also editor on the TV series Work in Progress, Messiah, Sensate, and Gideon's Crossing. As a VFX editor, he worked on The Amazing Spider-Man 2, Ghost Rider, Spirit of Vengeance, The A-Team, and he was an assistant editor on Star Wars Revenge of the Sith, Attack of the Clones, and Phantom Menace. At the end of the interview, when I get through all of my questions, we're turning the interview over to some Art of the Cut fans who had some questions of their own for our guest. If you're interested in reading this interview with visual support and clips and trailers, head on over to blog.frame.io, where there's a ton of great expert content for film professionals of all types. Let me uh, start off the interview by asking you how you met Lena. You edited a movie called Ninja Assassin, and she was a producer on that. Is that how you guys met? Uh, No. No. But close. (laughs) I met them both Lana and Lily on Speed Racer. I was the first assistant on that. And James was the second unit director. They were getting ready to do Ninja while we were on post on Speed. And they gave both myself and Gian Ganziano, who was a VFX editor on Speed, the opportunity to cut Ninja. So it was a great opportunity. And it started a working relationship with James as well. I'm really interested in that idea of moving up through the ranks. And what do you think it was that they saw in you? A work ethic, the kind of person that you were, the way you collaborated? What was it that made them think? Or was it just pure editing talent? No, I think it was all of that. Because sometimes pure editing talent doesn't necessarily translate to a relationship. But Speed was a very complicated film and I think they could see I worked hard there was nothing I wouldn't do to help push the project forward and I worked with Roger Barton on that who was incredibly kind about letting me work on stuff so yeah when it came time for them to look for somebody I think they're all about giving opportunities so that was right place at the right time yeah that's nice to hear that that they're willing to do that did that early experience with her give you a, a sense for her aesthetics that when you got on this project, you felt like you you knew what she was looking for? Or was it just looking at the material and deriving where you were going to go from purely from the dailies you were receiving? Well, I'd worked with her over the years. So I did Sense8 with her. So, yeah, you get a sense of what she likes, but also... It's good for me, good for her, if I don't know too much. Of course, you read the script in your mind's eye. You have an idea of what you see, what you hear. And I think for her, there's also something about discovering something she may not have thought about. Oh, you interpreted this that way. So that's how we go. She's also extremely busy while she's shooting. So I just cut away. And then there are times where she has to come to the cutting room because there's a difficult sequence that we're working on and she wants to see how it's going. But otherwise I'm left alone. 
I've talked to a couple editors about that while you can maybe cut a scene the way you think she wants to see it cut, there's also value in saying she knows how that's going to go. I'm going to cut it the way I want it cut so that she has another perspective. Correct. Yeah, and that's what I was saying. There are things that she has in her head that she knows exactly what she's looking for, especially when she's directing the actors. If she gets what she wants, she can move on or she'll ask for other stuff. I'm constantly listening to her direction Mm. because that's also helpful to hear and see the sort of performance that's working for her. But things always change. That first cut it's a jumping off place. And there are some cases where the cuts don't change much. But once you start putting scenes together, you know, the rhythm changes, you might end up moving things around. But I think she likes to jump in and see how things either changed, maybe also in her mind's eye. But she's also very good at remembering moments that she liked, (laughs) which is helpful, actually. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Did you watch any of the previous films uh, more carefully in preparation for this job? Not really. I mean, I watched them again, of course, but I kind of think there's danger in that because you just don't want to do the exact same thing Mm -hmm. over again. There's a bit of that that was intentional where the film starts in a way that's extremely reminiscent of the original Matrix, that the style, the colors, the crisp look, and we gradually get away from that. That was intentional to remind the audience, let them in, enjoy what they remember. The nostalgia <laughs> of it, the fandom. Well, this kind of movie, the fans come out, they've got an expectation. They do. And that's good because there's a huge following. The, the anticipation for this film is quite big. The, you know, I would say the danger for fans, I experienced this when I worked on Star Wars, if fans take too much ownership of something, they don't realize that they really don't want the same thing <laughs> over and over again. And there is a lot of the same thing. I mean, we are going back to the Matrix, but the fans also want to be surprised. They want to be taken somewhere that they didn't expect. Did you temp with anything from the Matrix world? No. And that's a good question. When I started Sense8, Lana had done this before with Cloud Atlas, Tom Tickford, who also did the score and directed on Cloud. On Sense8, Tom and Johnny Klimek did the score. But what they do is read the script, and then they create a bunch of cues based on conversations with Lana. And what they deliver is a full mix, all the stems, piano, brass, strings, synths. There could be four different strings, four different things of percussion. And then I I get all that. So while I'm cutting, I don't use anything from any other score. I'm only using new score that's meant for the show. I hope that this catches on because... (laughs) There's always that risk of temp love, and then you hand it off to a composer, and you're like, do that. And then you get the same thing, but different. But also the beauty in this is I have these keys, these charts, you know, the beats per minute, the key that the cue is in. And I work very closely with Gabriel Mounsey, who's our sort of editor engineer, and he's worked with Johnny for forever. But when I start 
scoring, I will use a string line or a piano line, or, you know, I can take some of those stems and you sort of recreate what's there. But if you want it slowed down or sped up, because sometimes we'll use pieces, stems from two different cues. And this gets very complicated when Lana starts with me in post, because she is all about score and she loves music. She loves working with these stems. So then we have a bass, I can give it back to Gabriel and I may not be in the right tempo exactly. He calls it getting it on the grid, but he'll smooth everything out and give it back to me mixed and with stems if I need it. So it's an ongoing process, but the score is always, it always was the resurrection score. That's really nice. I have heard more and more of people that are getting that kind of thing. I think the Ghostbusters Afterlife people said that there was a 10-minute suite written before they ever started editing. So Good. that's really nice. Good. What about sound effects? Same thing. Did you have a toolbox from the sound team? Yes, a little bit. We borrowed a lot from the stems from the originals, but not too much. We improvised where we needed to, but some of the very specific sounds we we did borrow. Again, we wanted new sounds. So Dane Davis created a whole new soundscape for us and the ships sound similar, but different. And yeah, he was very conscious of not doing exactly the same. Your background, you've done a bunch of VFX editing for really big films, Star Wars, you mentioned. What did you learn in your VFX editing that you were able to translate over to this film? Because obviously a lot of VFX in this movie. Not, not as much as I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> it's all they actually went to the Matrix and shot live in the Matrix. Exactly. Oh, okay. It was all right. Dripping code behind this. <laughs> it helped me not to be afraid of green screens and comping. And I do all my work in the Avid. I know a lot of visual effects editors use other programs, but my main focus is telling the story. And I do a really good job of just using the tools that I have and nothing really phases me. You know, <laughs> if Lana wants to reconstruct an image, it's very easy for me to just quickly take a performance from this part of the take, merge it with a performance of this part of the take, add a background, change the timing. It's all possible. Recreating the frame is fun too. That's what makes it exciting. And it's also really great to get those things back from our post-vis team. When you see the real images from VFX, when you have, you know, CG images added, characters added, it's really, it's like Christmas. Uh, do you have any special tool set inside the Avid that you use to be able to pull off those kind of comps and stuff? Literally just with some no plugins or anything. Wow, that's impressive. And if there are plugins added to my toolkit, mm -hmm. yes, I would use them. But Spectromat, resizing, all of those classic, yeah, my motion effect tool is always open because everything, almost everything is shot off speed. So it's pretty cumbersome for my team because normally dailies are all sunk in house somewhere and delivered, but because everything's off speed, they have to sync it in the cutting room so we don't lose all the metadata attached to the 
material. So when I'm cutting, I always have the ability to speed things up, slow things down without losing quality because everything's shot at such high speeds. Usually everything's shot at least 48 and 24. And we had one sequence in Tiffany's workshop that was shot in 96 and 120, 48, 8. And you just asked about sound visual effects, parts of the frames are running at eight frames per second. Some is running at eight frames at 24. Some is at 120. Some is at 96. It was a lot of comping and roto and all that stuff, trying to make those things work together. And the soundscape there was really important because all of those things are happening at the same time. You'll understand that when you see it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm really interested in the sound design that you're talking about because uh, how much of it are you trying to do as you're doing the picture cut or do you have to imagine it while you're doing the picture cut or asking assistants to do it? I do have to imagine it first and then you grab what you can. I would always sort of temp something out quickly, roughly, and then hand it off to my first assistant, Tosca, who is amazing. And then she could farm stuff out to the other assistants because there was so much material trying to keep up with camera. It had hours of footage a day. I couldn't get bogged down too much with the sound design, although I would do enough that they could hear what I was looking for. And then, you know, there's always that point when you start sending stuff off to sound, when you start doing temp dubs, and then we could carry that stuff along with us. Absolutely. You mentioned your assistant editor. What are some of the things that you learned coming up as an assistant editor that you carried forward? Look, Things that you go, oh my gosh, I'm so glad I was an assistant because I learned this important lesson. This is exactly how Tosca, my first, operated as well. Like I never wanted my editor to need anything. Always wanted them to have everything they needed. So all they had to be concerned about was cutting. Because if you're not freed up to just think about the creative process that you're trying to do, it's very difficult to lose yourself in the footage and in the scene. I try to make sure that my assistants are aware of that. I try to let them know what I need, when I need it. I don't like to harp on them. And she was extremely good at that, at delegating and considering the amount of footage we were getting and that they had to sync it all. Plus, I had an assistant who was solely doing script sync. Let's say whatever they shot today was very likely I could start cutting on it tomorrow afternoon, late morning. They were that fast and they knew exactly what they needed to get done so I could at least start working because I could start making my selects, marking stuff up while the script sync was still getting done. And sometimes I could cut a scene before it was even done. The script sync is it's super important for Lana because once we get through her first pass or second pass, when she really wants to get into the minutia, she likes to hear every line read, whether it's on camera or off, because sometimes she'll want to replace just a reading. So my team was super good at just making sure I had everything I needed so I could just cut. Do you find that your use of script sync is much heavier with the director than it is when you're cutting during dailies? Yeah. It's very helpful if I want to go back on something I've already cut. And it's helpful to cut things very quickly, that's for sure. But the danger is you miss subtleties that are in between the lines. Yeah, discovery. Yeah, it's the same thing if you try to watch dailies fast, double time or something. You always miss something. And it's the same thing with stuff that's been shot at 120. If I watch it in real time, 
it plays differently than watching it super slow speed. Script sync is that way. It is helpful. It's super helpful with the director, I have to say, if you're trying to find the right reading. But for me, I definitely use it. It helps me move very quickly, but I can't use it just to cut the script together because you'll miss all that sort of subtle stuff in between the lines. And as you mentioned, you were using the stuff between the lines, her giving direction to the actors, right? Absolutely. And none of that stuff shows up in the script sync. Can you give an example of the kind of things that you would hear her say maybe to an actor like, oh, I want that less angry or I want it hesitant? Or what are some of the things that you're picking up from her direction in between takes? Well, it's almost exactly like that. She'll say, try that again, flatter. You know, don't step on the lines. Do it with a little more humor. Just add a little more subtle humor to that. Or it could also be as much as this time, make sure you can feel the light. Don't go too far or try it with this and she'll rewrite the script instead of, can you give me a bottle of water? Can you hand me that bottle of water? That's a really (laughs) simplified version, but... But that's helpful because then when you are cutting it together, you know not to use, you know, the get me in to use the hand me or whatever the the deal is. Yeah. But the danger in that too is like Lana will say, yeah, I thought I wanted that, but I decided (laughs) better this way. But you're absolutely right. It is good. It's always good to hear her say, don't rush the line. Sometimes she'll want them to make their performance more internalized, but that you feel it. And how similar is the structure of the film to the original script? Pretty similar, I have to say. She worked very hard on it for a long time with David and Sasha. So it was pretty well edited. It was, you know, long, so we cut it down, but we didn't lose a lot of scenes. They did a good job of cutting it down, and we were faithful to try and keeping everything that was important in the film. So the shortening in the film was primarily done inside of scenes instead of by losing scenes? Primarily, yes. One of the things that I'm interested in is perspective and how you might edit the film from one character's view or a scene from one character's view. And here you've got a character, he's Mr. Anderson, but he's Neo, like you've got multiple POVs inside of one human being. Is it always the perspective of a specific part of his character or does that not matter? Does that not play into it? No, it does matter. But I think you want to be in the perspective of the character at the time because otherwise it wouldn't feel authentic like when he's in the matrix you want to believe that he's there that he's not aware that he's in the matrix and that's kind of how they trick the audience to begin with in the beginning of the film when you're in the matrix and then all of a sudden you pull out and you realize huh (laughs) where am i the beauty of that is in this film is that thomas anderson neo is back in the matrix And it's once he becomes aware of it, you know, his character's stronger because he can do things that most people can't do. There are things that are different about this Matrix than the original Matrix. But you want to make him feel right in his skin, whether he's in the Matrix or not. You've worked on, obviously, some very big films, this one included. Talk to me a little bit about the editor as manager. Are you being managed Or does your assistant manage you in a way on a film this big because you just have to have your nose to the grindstone? Or are you trying to edit and manage and handle VFX and all this other stuff? It's a little bit of both. 
I have to rely on my assistant for some scheduling things. And she would always make me aware of something because I don't know how many emails she might get a day or phone calls. I'm off most of those lists. So she knows how to filter them. Her post-supervisor there in Berlin is very close to hers because it's important for me to know what's going on. I'm very good at putting that stuff aside and not letting it cloud my head. And fortunately, during dailies, I'm really good at just putting the blinders on while I'm cutting. Things are happening so fast that I think everybody's on the same sort of schedule because production is dictating how we're moving. Once you move into post, you have these deadlines, but it's not quite the same as every day they're shooting. They've got to wrap a set so they can clear it and start building another set. So yeah, she was very good about keeping me up to date on anything I needed to know, whether it was coming from Warner Brothers or internally. I was also very good about, you know, if Lana needed something or wanted something, making sure that she was aware of it so she could request whatever it was, make it happen. I also stayed very close to Lana's right hand, Amy Allegretti, who's one of our executive producers. She and I talk all the time. So it's very important. You know what it's like, these big films. I don't know about the big films. Um, Well, I know about the smaller films. Big and small, they all need to get done on time. You know, there's all these things that have to happen. And on these big, big films, there's also marketing happening. Fortunately for us, those things were happening or we were made aware of them later in the game. So we could focus on cutting. But yeah, there's a lot of those things happening in the background that are just, they have a life of their own. You have to just hit those dates. On smaller films, I feel like the editor takes on more of the management role. And then on the bigger films, it feels like you have so much to do that that has to go to somebody else. And you're being more like, just feed him scenes. Yeah, no, that is true. Plus, I guess the volume of work has something to do with it too. We had a local post in Berlin, post supervisor, and we had a pet of post at Warner Brothers. I'm sure, I think they were talking probably daily. But yeah, there's so much going on. The stakes are so high. I don't want to say people are micromanaging out there, but they probably are. But we were left, at least in my world, we were left alone a bit so we could just focus on cutting. And Yolana was always in touch with the studio. There was always open communication when they needed to talk to her. You mentioned a couple of times the speed of the film, you know, 96 or 120 or 48. Talk to me a little bit about making those time choices of when you're going to be in real time, basically 24 frames per second, and when and how you get from regular time to slow-mo. Yeah, I'm sure you've done it. You see it a lot of time in action sequences to exaggerate a moment. You might go from real speed to super slow and then really fast. Unlike those things, the sequence I mentioned earlier in Tiffany's workshop, because we go into a bullet time sort of thing without giving too much away. (laughs) Definitely don't want to do that. Yeah, that's when the timing was super important because it was part of the scene, not just used as an effect in action or a dream sequence or things that we usually think of manipulating speeds. This was a version of bullet time where to add beauty to things that are happening in the background, we changed the speeds or we would morph speeds of the shot because there were multiple cameras shooting at the same time. So in that case, it wasn't just going to a standard uh, one slow-mo, you're going to multiple speeds. 
Exactly. It was like working on a live painting or something because <laughs> you were trying to also make it beautiful. And I have to say, this is one of the scenes where lighting for Lana is super important. And she will tell you how John Tall taught her about lighting. And she's known about lighting her whole career, but how her relationship to lighting and real light has changed over the course of her career. But where this warehouse was located, it would get early morning sun, sunrise, and it was only available for a few hours. And you know what it's like setting up and you want natural light filtering through these massive windows. It was also the time of year, I think we were heading towards August. She had someone checking lighting every day. And we knew that we had three weeks, I think, to get it because they would go shoot in the morning. We lost the sun. That was it. And if it was rainy in Berlin, like Chicago or other cities here, there's a lot of rain. We were right up against the wire to get that natural light filtering through this set, but it was a live set. So that was super important, which added to this, like I was telling you, make a visual painting. It's such a stunning set. When you look at this, you'll be like, oh my God, I know what he was talking about. Oh, we talked about sound effects. I think of something, even just a regular fight scene, like I've cut a couple of regular fight scenes where it's two cops or something, and the punches are just not punches. Like, first of all, they're not trying to hit each other. The efforts and all that stuff have to be added so that it sounds real. Talk to me about building a scene that way. Yeah, well, all those efforts and stuff, a lot of those were added later, but I did use what I had. We used punches from the original if we had them. We also hyper-exaggerate, like early in the film, there's a fight sequence, so like, The kicks are hyper real because you want the audience to feel those things. When you're in the Matrix, there are sounds that, you know, people think, oh, that's the way that sounds, but it's animation and there's no sound to it. Yes. I mean, I'm probably taking a lot of this for granted because I was in that world for so long. (laughs) But yeah, there are some CG characters that we have that Dane created sounds for us that you've probably never heard before, but they sound familiar. So when you meet this character, it it makes sense. It's not like you look at this character and the sound doesn't make sense. It's sentient. So it's sort of a machine, but it feels human-like. It moves human-like. So Dane did a really good job, of course, with those sounds. But a lot of our sequences are based in, you know, real-ish world settings. So familiar, but maybe hyper-familiar. Hyper-familiar. I'm going to start using that term. I like that. Let's talk a little bit about nuts and bolts of editing. When you are cutting a scene, when you walk in in the morning and you're faced with a blank timeline and a full bin, first of all, how does how do you ask the assistants to prep that for you? And then what do you do when you come in to create a new scene? Well, I have a folder at the top of the project. It says to view, to cut, something like that. So I know that anything in there is prepped and ready for me. And then, of course, when I'm done, I move it out so that they know that they can file it away into the scene bin. Everything is grouped when there's multiple cameras. And then I have everything in 24 frame. And then they'll also leave everything for me at whatever it was shot at. If we shot at 48 or 96 or 120, I always have that available too. And then I will read the scene once, maybe twice. And then I start watching dailies. And they'll usually build them for me in shot order. So you watch selects like a chem roll. 
No, I watch every take. I actually don't like to have them strung out because when I'm watching dailies, I'm making marks for my selects. It's a little cumbersome for me because if I start cutting from selects or only looking at selects, again, I'll miss something. And then if I match back, like if I hold a select and then I start playing a select and I think, oh, what happened before that? (laughs) And I have to match back and back up. But whenever I load a take, I'm the only one who's allowed to use a green marker. Those are my selects. So when I load a take, I see exactly where my selects are. And the assistants will mark resets. So I always know where a take is reset and starts over, or they'll make a note that it starts from this point or whatever. And I'll get used to the timing. So if I see a bunch of resets, I get used to like what happens within that take. But it's just easier for me to go back to a locator of my select because I can start playing a little before it and play into it. So anyway, then I just start watching everything. I load a take, watch it, mark it, load a take, watch it, mark it. And I'll go back and forth between real time, slow, real time, slow, whatever. This seems like a crazy question, but in what order do you watch either the takes or the setups? (laughs) I usually just watch them in shot order. If they shot something, let's say early on, they picked up an insert that actually happens later or whatever, some dialogue, I will have talked to my assistant about that and they would reorder it. But generally it's easier for me to watch them in shot order because they're usually shooting it in a script order, more or less, at least I should say in a scene. In a lot of the big action sequences, it's like building a puzzle. You work on the frame and then the next day you get this piece over here and you work on that and then you get this piece over here. You know, I just have to start working on it in pieces and then put it all together. But they would go back and do, maybe not even pickups, but you go back and shoot a different part of the scene and then I have to go back and recut. It's hard for me to say because I kind of lose myself in the scene. And sometimes either it's time to go to lunch or I'm done for the day. And then I come back the next day and I watch what I did. I was like, wow, cool. I did that because I get so involved and I remember this piece from somewhere and I start pulling little pieces that I'll just save. And then I start building and it starts making sense and I'll massage it a little. I'll keep going. But I will say that sometimes it is strange that I lose myself in the process of cutting so that the scene takes on a rhythm of its own and I'm, I'm just sort of guiding it. Totally understand that. Absolutely. Do you approach a scene differently if it's a simpler scene, like a dialogue scene compared to one of these big complex action scenes? Yeah, I think so. Because one, I can move a lot faster. Two, there's probably not as much footage. So it tends to move faster. And a lot of times dialogue sequences, the actors can set a pace. But, you know, action sequences rely heavily on editing because you're shooting an explosion and then you're shooting a chase and a crash and you're creating the timing more than what was done during production. Or a fight feels like an entire dance, but each part of the fight is only a single move. So you can only go so far in one shot. I remember seeing there was a ballet that was shot, one camera, and it was stunning, beautifully performed. And, you know, you think, wow, this is this was an amazing piece. But then you see the same exact thing edited. And it was probably shorter, I think, if I remember correctly. But, you know, you can move in and see an expression or a leg comes down and hits a hand and you see the dust fly. You're setting a pace 
an emotion, drama. That's what chase scenes are like for me. You know, you can film a chase scene or a car that's rounding a corner in a, a collision. But until you add all those other pieces, that's when it comes to life. Absolutely. You've cut scenes individually. They look good to you. They feel good. You like them. Good. Let's put them in the movie. And then you put all those scenes together and you discover something is wrong either at the transitions or with a pace or with those scenes in context. What are some things that change when you see things in context? Actually, a very good example of that is there's a sequence that we call the treadmill of life. It will be obvious to you when you see it, but it's this recurring thing over and over again that we do in our lives. You do the same thing. You get up, you have breakfast, your coffee, you know, it's your routine. You go to work, you have lunch, you come home, dinner, and you start all over again. So it was quite long the way it was scripted because there are all these little things, vignettes happening in Thomas's life and things that are happening in the office where he works. And it was just way too long. So Lana loves montage and it was always meant to be sort of montage but we built, it was sort of two montages and even then it was too much by itself it was amazing you're we totally invested in it it's great but in the context of the film it was too long and if you saw the first trailer the white rabbit was used so this montage was score and then we transitioned into white rabbit montage and then literally this is a sequence that we worked on for a year and a half over and over we were in that treadmill ourselves over and over trying to find the sweet spot because it's such a great sequence and there's so much information in it. It's a really smart sequence. The dialogue, I think fans will really appreciate how much went into this sequence, but we kept molding it down so it becomes one montage that's connected throughout and it becomes more emotional. So in the context of the whole film, it works really well. On its own, it worked really well, long in two parts, but for the reasons that you mentioned, we had to keep working at it and working at it to make it work in the context of the film. Are you ready for some questions from some viewers? Okay, let's go. Let's go. Travis Krilicki asks, does music soundtrack influence your edit? Yes. So I think I mentioned I get cues from the composers. And when I'm thinking about a scene, I'll very often just put up a cue and let it play in the background while I'm cutting. Not even attached to the timeline? It depends. If it's something I want to use, I will unlock those tracks so I can cut without cutting up the music track. And I'll just keep playing with that and then go back and adjust the cut. Because sometimes in that treadmill sequence, we did our version of White Rabbit. Cuts were very dependent on how that piece of music hit. So I had to go back and always keep readjusting. But for those who might not be experienced editors, do you tend to cut with music when you're cutting like an action scene? Is that something you normally do is put music in right at the beginning? It usually depends, but I do like to have score playing because it sets a pace, mm -hmm. especially if I have an idea for an action scene. It really does help set the pace. I may change it, obviously, but yeah, when I'm cutting, I usually do like to hear score. And before I move on to the next question, once you've cut with score, do you ever turn the score off to watch the cut without the score? Yep, both. Yeah. Simon Gibbs asked, what was the most difficult obstacle that had to be overcome in the edit? I think Treadmill of Life was a big one because it comes relatively early on and it sets the tone for a lot of things that are happening within the matrix and we needed to get it right. So things didn't grind to a halt and that propels you forward. 
One of the other things I will say is Trinity and Thomas's Neo's relationship. Carrie Ann nailed it when she meets him. This, have we met before? Even in the trailer, that's a great scene. Yeah, we're so glad that made it in. And even Neo's reaction to her, that sort of silly butterflies in your stomach kind of feeling. But we had to be careful because they don't really know each other now. And there was a moment when they actually meet later in the cafe. We took it out because it was too sweet, too much, too soon. And it was an amazing moment. Those two have such great chemistry that, you know, you want to keep it all in. But we had to be careful. Totally makes sense. Andre Bob asks, did you feel nervous about taking on the job, given that this is such a monumental franchise? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> you worked um, on Star Wars, you worked on huge films. So this is yeah. not your first rodeo. <laughs> well, I will say, you know, there's so much anticipation. I mean, Warner Brothers has wanted to go back to the Matrix for years and the fans, the chatter that's out there, it's a huge undertaking. So there's that. And then when you think it, there's an enormous budget, there's hundreds of people working on this pre-production. And if you think of an hourglass or a funnel, all of that work, it's all funnels down and it lands in editorial. I try not to think about all of it <laughs> um, because then there's an intimate relationship with me in my cutting room with the work and I just do the work. So yeah, it can uh, be Ch overwhelming. Chancellor Haynes asks, any action previs? What about stunt previs? There were definitely scenes where I had pre-vis and I will say post-vis as we were cutting, the post-vis team supplied me with animation that I could use. Tim Lewis asks, what stylistic choices, if any, did you adopt from Zach Steinberg to give Resurrections the Matrix feel? And what new stylistic choices did you choose to add to it, whether by necessity or personal touch? The viewers will see in the beginning of the film, it's very reminiscent of the original the color palette, the style, the cutting pattern, it's fairly reminiscent. And then we gradually get away from that. The camera loosens up. It's all handheld. There's a fight sequence on a train that you'll see it, it's very chaotic. The camera was everywhere. There's a frenetic energy to it that was just different because it wasn't so blocked out and rehearsed. But then it, the movie alters from that. Right after the beginning. The color palette changes. We move away from the look and feel of the first. So it becomes its own thing. Now, we've talked about this in the first part of the interview, but Max Fetter says, what was it like working with such a VFX heavy production? I've worked on so many heavy VFX productions that it's part of the nature of my work and cutting room. So it just felt natural, normal for me. Rodecker's son asks, is there a post-credit scene? <laughs> um, well, all I can say is... <laughs> Watch all the credits no matter what. <laughs> yeah, audience goers, first of all, they should always sit through the credits because <laughs> the score, it's so beautiful what the composers do, especially in films like this where it's a long credit sequence. You enjoy it, sit back, relax, think about the film, enjoy the score, and then you'll see for yourself if there's a post-credit sequence. Beautifully said. Uh, <laughs> Joseph McGowan says, how much of a goal was editing the film as a standalone story for incoming fans versus a part of a longer story for the fans that already exist? 
Yeah, super important. We want to make sure that the fans are happy because frankly, the fans are the ones that drove the interest for another Matrix film. You know, you don't want to do the same thing over and over. But I'll say like our use of flashbacks from the originals, we didn't want to overuse them, but they're super emotional cues for fans. And it also informs the new viewers who aren't very familiar. So it triggers something that gives them information about the scene. We're very careful about not overdoing it. Most of the people that watch or listen to Art of the Cut are experienced editors or people that know editing pretty well. But we have a couple of questions that are a little bit more elemental, and I want to ask you about those. At what point do you start editing? Me, normally, always when they start shooting. The fun thing in this case, I visited Lana about a year before production ever began. And she said she had a surprise for me. And she read about the first third of the script that they had at that time, which got me super excited because she came up with a very smart, clever way to go back to the Matrix. But anyway, in this case, I went to San Francisco for the table read. I got to meet all the actors and see a lot of the crew that I know and meet new crew members. They, of course, stayed because shooting began in San Francisco. I went to Berlin and while they were shooting, everything was sent to us there. So I just started cutting straight away while they were shooting in San Francisco. The sad thing is for everybody globally, they happened to wrap shooting right around the time COVID was starting to roll out. Production moved, everybody moved to Berlin, but we, about two weeks before we we're going to start shooting, we had to shut down and we were all sent back and then started up about two weeks later. But I do edit throughout production. And the idea is to try to stay up to camera. I never thought about this. How do you feel about starting editing during production? I love it. I mean, the thing is, I suppose if you started after, you would have the ability to cut in script order. You could follow the script and watch the arc of the character, the story. But it's really good for production if you do cut with production because there's so much money involved. I think I mentioned before, you have to strike sets. If I feel like I'm missing something or an editor's missing something, you can send a note to the director, call them and say, get these inserts. And yeah, plus it's helpful for them. If I'm cutting, Lana come to the cutting room and look at stuff and think things that she wanted to go back and get. You know, I mentioned the one practical set that was dependent on the morning light. She would come and look at it every day to see if it was hitting right. And would they start earlier the next day? Or yeah, it's very helpful. What do you think she was looking for when she hired you? Why you? <laughs> That's a hard question for you to answer, yeah. of course. <laughs> Why not me? <laughs> I have a good working relationship with her. We have very similar sensibilities. And I think the one thing that she loves is that we've always had this rule of just try. There's no no. If she says, what about trying something like this? I'm like, yes. Or even me, you know, I'll cut a scene, it looks good. And then if I have time, I think I'm going to try something else, just something different. She loves that. She doesn't want to ever hear no. She loves that you want to just try something different. And James McTeague was with us a lot and he's worked with her forever. So he was also there in the cutting room most of the time. And he thinks the same way, just try. You never know what you'll discover by just trying stuff. Carlos Mendoza asked, how long was the original editor's cut? Let's just say it was probably around three hours and 15 minutes, something like that, which, okay. isn't, which isn't outrageous. Do you remember how long the final, you know, what we're going to see in the movie theaters? How long is that before credits? Of course I know how long that is. <laughs> of course you do. <laughs> 
That's just over two. And somebody had a very specific question about one of the scenes in the trailer where somebody's running up a wall. Can you talk about a scene like that? Is there anything to your editing of a scene like that? It's part of the script. They're running down a hallway, but then Dan Glass, our VFX supervisor, working with Lana about style choices. Because you're in the matrix, they can bend the physical world. And so, yeah, when they're running to escape, she does run up along the wall. And if you look really closely, the walls are separating and you can see a hint of code there. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I take my lead also by what's shot. It was shot with her running up the wall. So green screen probably, right? If the walls are separating, there's code behind or no? Yes, but that, screen and wire work. But, but that actually was a set. She was running up a hallway. It looked and felt like a real set, but visual effects broke it apart so they could move it. But they did that in the digital world. All right. I think those are all the questions that the fans had. Thanks for playing along with our game. <laughs> You've made a lot of uh, Art of the Cut fans very happy because now they are officially Art of the Cut interviewers. Thank you for having me, man. Thanks to the fans. This wouldn't be possible without them. Yeah, the fans are very happy with your work, I'm sure. And thank you for your time. Have a great one. Thank you. Bye, Jack. Appreciate it. See ya. I stopped recording our interview before Jet mentioned his stellar team, so I definitely want to make sure that they get a shout out. Jet said that he could not have done a show like this without their help. His small but mighty crew was first assistant Tosca Hartman, assistants Karen Kramacek and Philip Schlinder, post PA Clara Zimmer, and VFX editor Tino Brat. I apologize if I butchered any of those names. That's it for Out of the Cut this week. Thank you so much for listening. Again, these interviews are available to read at blog.frame.io, where they're supported with great visual content, images, video clips, and more. It's a great opportunity to check out the other expert content on the blog for filmmakers of all types. Frame.io also has a YouTube channel, including a video Art of the Cut interview with Dune editor and multi-Oscar nominee, Joe Walker, ACE. And more video interviews are coming soon. Also, check out my book, Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors, for a topic-driven, curated look at the craft of editing. Thanks to my guest, Joseph Jet Sally. Thanks to Sebastian Ray for editing today's podcast using Adobe Audition. And thanks to Frame.io for their support of Art of the Cut and its pledge to keep this content coming your way. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, follow me and feel free to reach out to me on Twitter and Instagram at at Steve Hullfish. And so you don't miss out on all the great upcoming interviews on the Art of the Cut podcast, subscribe to this podcast. And remember that if you have a friend in the film business or who aspires to be in the film business, make sure to tell them about the Art of the Cut podcast and blog.frame.io. 